You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, the most important thing we can talk about is Jesus. The most important person we can talk about is Jesus. The most important subject we can talk about is what he has done for us. And as we talk today uh, about Christ, our righteousness, and righteousness by faith, may your Holy Spirit once again teach us and help us to understand. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And this is a real, this whole issue is a real conundrum to me. A conundrum, my definition of conundrum is there's so much you want to do and so much you want to say, but how do you say it all? And how do you accomplish it all? You know, in uh, camp meetings after 1888, Ellen White, Jones and Wagner went around preaching the gospel message, the most precious message. And as they went from camp meeting to camp meeting, they they, you know, their camp meetings were intense. You think our, I don't mean in tense, but they were filled to capacity with Bible study and, and, uh, and interaction. And we do that here, but I think we're more relaxed here than those camp meetings probably were. And they were packing every message and every, every, uh, presentation with the, with the gospel message. I mean, when Wagner and Jones and Ellen White would speak, they'd speak for an hour and, and, or two or whatever it was and, 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 and that message. And then the next one would continue on with that and they continued on with that message all day long and, and, uh, and however long camp meeting went. And, you know, I think about all that we'd like to say. In some ways, we're going the opposite direction. Instead of trying to overload, we are trying to synthesize, trying to simplify the message, which has its problems, because there are things that we're leaving out that we might be able to include. Somebody might say, well, you know, there's, there's so much more we could be talking about. What about this part of the message and that part of the message? Absolutely. There's so much we could be talking about. And over the last couple of years, as I said uh, when I started yesterday, when we started yesterday, we were talking about a um, uh, the history of this presentation and the content, some of that content of the of the uh, of the authors, uh, Jones, Wagner, Prescott, Ellen White, and the messages they shared, and. I feel I feel as though there's so much we want to talk about, and yet we want to make sure that the message is clear and simple uh, as a, a way of being able to say, all right, the message of righteousness by faith is not complicated. And as we said yesterday, we were just talking about a primer or a primer and I think you say primer for that book that uh, might be in a, in, a, in a classroom that was the beginning of education. But I think we need a primer to get the gospel message out and full where it needs to be. Um, we learned yesterday that righteousness is holiness, rightness, goodness, uprightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting perfect conformity to God's law, among other things. Righteousness is the essence of who God is. It is His character. God wants to see His character reproduced in His people. And as such, as we understand this, we recognize that Righteousness originates from God and is exclusive in the sense that God alone is righteous. Humanity, on the other hand, that's us, have a problem. We don't have a shred of righteousness in us. 
and yet without it, no one will enter heaven. And so that's another conundrum. It's a problem for us. But there's good news. It's known as the gospel, which is good news. Amen? And that is that God offers his perfect righteousness to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. When we put our trust in God and choose to accept the righteousness of Christ in place of our sins, it becomes ours by faith. Yes, by faith. We are able to receive the righteousness of God in the only way we can receive it. You can't pay for it. You can only accept it by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. There's a reason why we talk about righteousness by faith. And we get in trouble when we start putting something else in there. And we try to say, well, it's got to have this part and it's got to have that part. It all is centered on faith because there's no other way for us to be able to receive and accept the righteousness of Christ. But we want to understand more in depth about that today, and so we're going to dig a little deeper as we start to look at those words we hinted at yesterday, imputed and imparted. So, Brother... Howard, come and share with us, where are we headed today? All right. Morning, everyone. Before I go into what I'm going to cover, I'd just like to ask the Lord for his guidance as we look at this uh, topic today. Heavenly Father, we are just grateful to be here, uh, fellowshipping with one another, being able to open your word and study together, and having the confidence that the spirit of truth will guide us into all truth. Lord, this is our prayer morning, not just in this seminar, but over throughout this campground. We thank you for the messages we've already heard as they have uplifted Christ, and we just pray for more and more of the same. We thank you for hearing and answering, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I like what uh, Elder Snaim was saying there. I mean, the bottom line is righteousness by faith is simply righteousness no other way. You can't get righteousness by works. You can't get righteousness by... Uh, uh, your your birthright, you can't get righteousness for an amount of money. The only way you can get it is by faith. It is the righteousness of God, and you alluded to this, Elder Stamen. The gospel is good news for a reason. And that reason we looked at yesterday in Romans 1, if you have your Bibles. You can look at it again today, a very well-known passage. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 Actually, 16 and 17, the Bible says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who what? Believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek, because, that word for means because. This is why it's good news. Because in it, the what? The righteousness of God. Aha, that's the, that's the thing I need. That's the thing you need. The righteousness of God. Where can I find it? It's in the gospel. It's revealed Notice, from faith to faith. If you have faith in Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed as accessible to you and to me, as we learned yesterday. Now, one of the challenges, and Elder Snader mentioned this, why, it, it's a, it certainly is a conundrum. When you're trying to present righteousness by faith, when you have millennia of theology, you can't escape theological terms, and too often theological terms really don't edify lay people. And, we, and, and, and even, if I would dare say non-theological terms, let's talk about imputed righteousness. The word imputed appears nowhere in the New International Bible. Many of the theological, biblical terms we use came when they all read the King James. And so now... Many people, I'd say the majority of Christians, don't read the King James, and yet we still have terms, and people are totally unacquainted with what they mean. And you can't go to the Bible to find what they mean, because they're not there in the Bible. It's like imputed. Where is that? 
In the King James Version, in the context of the story of Abraham, where it's typically associated, well, specifically where it says Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, you don't find that in Paul's account in Romans. You have to go to the book of James. Take your Bibles and go with me to James. Right after Hebrews, you have the book of James. James chapter 2, verse 23. In fact, we're going to open up here and we're going to close here today. James is almost there. James 2, verse 23. The Bible says, and the Scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God. <laughs> and I'm reading in the New King James. It says, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. I'd have to be reading the King James to get the word imputed. Okay? Now, in the New King James, I will find the word imputed in Romans chapter 4, where it talks otherwise about Abraham. But in this particular verse, both here in James, when he quotes, he's quoting from Genesis 15:6. When Abraham came back, we're going to get into that. And uh, Paul quotes from the same place in Romans 4. Paul, well, I can't say Paul says. It says that it was the, the faith of Abraham was counted as righteousness in Romans 4.3. It says it was accounted here. Both of them are using the same Greek word. And that Greek word is the word logizomai. Now, I'm going to get into that in just a minute. But when we're talking about righteousness by faith, typically you'll hear words like imputed. How many of you have heard the word imputed before? The imputed righteousness of Christ. And what's the other word we use? Imparted. So there's imputed and imparted. And they're tied in with the concepts of justification and sanctification. Not going to get into glorification a whole lot right now. But these are the, the, the main terms typically we talk about are justification and sanctification. Imputed, imparted. Justification is what happens when we first come to Christ. Oftentimes it's said to be the work of an instant, the work of a moment. When I accept Christ, in that instant, I stand before God justified, just as if I had never sinned. And I think Elder Ross brought that up the other night. From that point on begins the process of sanctification, which is the work of a... Okay, you've heard that before. Now, Ellen White makes a... A, a very great clarifying statement here. In uh, This is from Review and Herald, June 4, 1895. She says, The righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. So just to graphically illustrate this, and I want you to notice something. In fact, take your Bibles... And we're going to delve into sanctification in more detail. Not so much today, but I do want you to see this in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 26. And we're going to start in verse 17. Acts 26 and verse 17. Now in my Bible, this is in red letter. Paul's talking about his conversion experience. And, and this is part of what Jesus told him on the road to Damascus. He says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are what? Sanctified how? By faith in me. What kind of faith? I know that sounds kind of silly, but here's what I'm getting at. The very same faith that justifies me sanctifies me. I don't choose a different kind of faith. I don't say, well, I'm going, to give, I'm going to give this kind of faith now and this kind of faith later. I believe in the promises of God, and through that belief, through that faith experience, I receive justification through the imputed righteousness of Christ. And the very same faith, incidentally, that gives me my title to heaven. In that moment, I stand before God just as if I'd never sinned. In the righteousness of Christ. And I am... I have my title to heaven, despite the fact that I'm not fit for heaven, despite the fact that I may not be living the righteous life, the righteousness of Christ is credited to me by faith. That same faith brings to me sanctification through the imparted righteousness of Christ, which provides the fitness for heaven. All of it is the work of Christ. All of it comes through faith. And the title to heaven is the work of an instant. The fitness for heaven is the work of a lifetime. That's basically that statement that 
we just read by Ellen White. Both of them are part of the experience of righteousness by faith. One can't exist without the other. Um, it, it's been equated to justification when I first received Christ. Born again through the Spirit, it's been equated to being born. Where sanctification has been equated to staying alive. Well, which one's more important? Kind of hard to figure that out, right? And Ellen White commented on that. Sometimes people like to... I'll just read the statement. You can read it with me. Notice what Ellen White says here. She says, Many commit the error of trying to define minutely the fine points of distinction between what? Justification and sanctification. Now, there are points of distinction. She just mentioned points of distinction. But notice what she says the danger is. Into the definitions of these two terms, they often bring their own ideas and speculations. And so, yeah, we understand there's justification and sanctification. Say, well, here's what you don't know about them. And oh, by sanctification is it. And it gives an opportunity to confuse what should be simple. Why try to be more minute than is inspiration on the vital question of righteousness by faith? Notice how she finished his statement. She says, you are in danger of making a world out of an atom and an atom out of a world. Right? Overstressing some point that shouldn't be stressed and minimizing points that probably should. So she cautions us off that ground. There are the distinctions. We're going to be talking about the distinctions this week. But today, our subject is the imputed righteousness of Christ. As I mentioned, the word imputed is a King James word, found in James 2.23. It's found in some other translations, but it comes from the Greek word logizomai. Now, this is an interesting word. The same word is translated reckoned and imputed in the King James. In other words, well, I'll, let me go on. In classical Greek, and in the papyri, and this is out of the SDA Bible commentary, they're commenting on this word. In the classical Greek and in the papyri, the term was used in connection with the keeping of accounts. Abraham's faith was set down on the credit side for righteousness. It's an accounting term. So it would be like you have a zero balance in your checking account. If somebody imputed something to your account, suddenly you show a balance. And the thing that's imputed is righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, in the context of what we're talking about. Now, <clears throat> interest, let me show you one other thing to segue for where Elder uh, is going to go here. If you go with me to Romans 4, I want to show you just a few places where we, where we see this word, the Greek word. You're not, you know, different translations translate it, accounted, counted, uh, reckoned, imputed, etc. Romans chapter 4, verse 3. The Bible says, for what does it... Well, let's start with verse 1. We may as well. Uh, and Elder Stam is going to review some of these things. What shall, then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was what? Accounted. Anybody have a different word than accounted? What is this? Reckoned, right? Reckoned, counted, accounted. Logizomai, that's the word there. Imputed unto him for righteousness. Like a deposit that wasn't there before. That didn't come from him. It came from somebody else. Now to verse 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does uh, not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted, logizomai, for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man uh, to whom God, logizomai, imputes righteousness apart from work. So there in the New King James, the word imputes. Verse 10 says, uh, well, verse 9, does this blessedness come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also, for we say that faith was accounted, logizomai, same word, and I've just lost my place, for right to Abraham for righteousness. Verse 10, how then was it? Logizomai, while he was circumcised. So you get the idea. It appears in many different places, but here's what's interesting. In the course of Scripture, I think, yeah, I did write it down here. In the King James Version, this Greek word appears 13 times. Six of those in the story of Abraham five of them in chapter 4. So in other words, of all the places in Scripture, this chapter, this, this concept of 
accounting righteous. The Apostle Paul uses this concept, especially in the story of Abraham. And the main takeaway here is that the history of Abraham is the Apostle Paul's chosen vehicle of thought to communicate in practical terms how a person is justified by faith. So we want to delve into this story of Abraham. Paul's saying this history, this story of Abraham, can give us a practical understanding of how we're made righteous by faith. How righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, is imputed to us. And Elder name is going to pick up on the story of Abraham here in Romans chapter 4. Amazing is the story of Abraham, isn't it? I mean, you look back at him. One thing I like about Abraham he was human. But his mistakes are obvious. And yet the Lord is able to talk to us through his experience of the tremendous faith that he had. Stop and think about it for a moment. Abraham is in this foreign country, I mean in his home country, and he's told by God, now I want you to go to a country you've never been to, you have no idea where you're going. He had no, you know, he had no travel brochures to see where he was headed. He had no drones he could fly over there and take a look at the country. He couldn't uh, send anybody out there. He was just told, go. Just go. Just go. Amazing that he would just, and you know, it, it wasn't, he had to pick up his whole family experience and go. You know, put them on camels, put them on horses, put them on donkeys, whatever it was he was going to use. And off they marched, going to where he was. Now, I'm getting ready to retire. I'm not as old as he was when he was told to go. In essence, he was starting his life. He was starting over again. I'm not ready to start over again. I, I'm ready to kind of settle down. But he was ready to go. God said, now I need you to go and to do that. Ah, this is just amazing to me how Abraham was able to do this. And, uh, you know, God says, Abram, I have found a beautiful retirement spot for you and your family, Sarah. Is that what he said? No, it was, I have a place for you to go. In Genesis, open to Genesis, because we're going to look at another place, but I'm going to be reading from chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and then you'll be able to slip over to 15, where we're going to go, chapter 15, here in a moment. But he simply says in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. <clears throat> I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in all the families of the earth, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, that's, that's quite a promise, right? Now, here's the, here's the good news. God comes to him and says, Hey, Abraham, I want you, Abram, I want you to leave everything behind. But God doesn't do that and just say, just go. He does give him a promise, doesn't he? He gives him an assurance. He says, this is what I'm going to do for you. And this is how I'm going to use you. Ellen White says in uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, Abraham's unquestioning obedience is one of the most striking evidences of faith to be found in all the Bible. Now we know the story of Abraham. We know along the way that there were some challenges for him as he was trying to process all of this. Ten years pass from when he is called to go and goes, and ten years go by, and this promise that God has given still has no evidence of being fulfilled. He's gone from this luxurious environment in Ur all the way to the promised land that is anything but looking like promised land. 
And he gets there, and one of the things he's promised is that all the earth is going to be blessed by him, and he's going to be the father of great nation. And guess what? He doesn't have any kids. And so there's a real process having to go on in his mind, I'm sure. How is God going to fulfill his promise? This is what Abraham is having to process. But I want you to notice that God never... Thank you very much. You want to notice that God, Abraham never is questioning God's promise. He knows that God's going to fulfill it. He's just asking, you know, how is this going to happen? I think there's... Uh, good evidence here of us reminds us that I think it's okay to ask how, but we have to be careful what we come to, what conclusions we come to when we start thinking of how. Because as he started to process it, he started to come up with solutions. And when we start, start to get out ahead of God, we come up with the wrong solutions. And that's part of what happened to him. God had not yet fulfilled the promise, correct? Ten years later, no son, no evidence at this point of how he's going to fulfill the promise. Look at Genesis uh, chapter 15, verses 1 and following there. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 and following. This is what Abram, Abram actually says here. Let's make sure we're talking about Abram and not yet Abraham. All right, in the Word of God... Verse 1, chapter 15, Genesis. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? I don't even have my own child. How is this happening here? Lord, is it, is it Eliezer? I mean, I'm just trying to understand. Then Abram said, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then verse 6. This is what we want to center on. Verse 6. And he did what? He believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness, or it was imputed to him for righteousness. It was credited to him. Now, don't get the idea, as we're talking about this, that we've got a ledger going on up in heaven. And one side, God puts his credit, and the other side, we get our credit, or whatever. We're, we're not balancing, balancing the ledger here, Right? We have zero credit. We never are going to have any credit. We've got nothing we can put to it to credit. And Abraham here is struggling with this process, and it's evidence of faith in his experience by what began to happen. It's interesting to note that in Genesis, it says Abraham believed in the Lord. That expression, believed in, we want to be careful we understand how that really fits together. In the New Testament, both James and Romans, James chapter 2, verse 23, and Romans chapter 4, verse 3 says, Abraham believed God. Notice the slight apparent difference, but it's making the point. Abraham didn't just believe in God as in believed in his existence. James makes it clear that even the devils believe, right? And James teaches us that's not the kind of belief we need. That's not the kind of belief that Abraham had. 
Abraham had the kind of belief that recognized that God was a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, as Paul says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. An important lesson in the story of Abraham is not just that he had faith, but he had a certain quality of faith, if we can put it that way. And it was said, and only uh, it was and is only this quality of faith that will bring the blessing of justification through the imputed righteousness of Christ. If that were not true, then the devil would be credited with righteousness. Is the devil credited with righteousness? So we know that that kind of belief is not the kind of faith that Abraham had or that we need to have. So we want to understand a little bit better about the quality of that faith. So we're going to put up on the screen here some of the quality elements in bullet point, bullet point form of Abraham's faith. And we're looking at um, looking over at Romans chapter 4. So slip over back to Romans where we have uh, been a few moments ago and we're going to look at verses 16 through 24. Okay, Romans 16, 4, 16 through 24. And this is what it says in Romans. Paul speaking. He's referring back to the experience of Abraham, Abram or Abraham, as we have seen it in Genesis. And this is Paul's looking at that experience and helping us to understand the faith that leads to righteousness. Verse 16, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be there of all to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, verse 17, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. Now, the next expression, I'm in the New King James Version, begins with believed God, and then someone read the last part of it. If you had the New King James, what does it say? Who what? Keep going. Read to the end of that uh, that verse. Okay, yeah, go back though, read the whole thing there. Who gives what? And? Okay, so this is one of those aspects of the quality of faith that Abraham had. So let's take a look at that for a moment. He believed that God could give life to the dead and create something from nothing. Now this is evidence of his faith as he grew. By the time we get to his biggest test, which he passed, because of his faith, this was key and a key element. And Paul is referring to that. He's helping us to understand that he believed God could give life to the dead and create something from nothing. We had a worship with our staff this morning, and the pastor was referring to, that gave us worship, uh, was referring to Genesis chapter 1, and he said, all our fundamental beliefs are summarized in Genesis chapter 1. I never thought about it quite that way, but it, that was really quite amazing. I, hey, he, God, created something out of nothing, right? That's amazing, yes, uh, are you talking about uh, Genesis? I mean uh, Exodus. I mean Romans. Yeah, Romans four verse uh, seventeen, and we're reading from Romans four sixteen through twenty four. So I want to keep going, and we'll pick up a few more points. In verse eighteen, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. Verse 19, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb and did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God 
and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. So let's pick up a few more aspects of the quality of the faith of Abraham here. He believed what God said according to what was spoken, and as we see in verse 18, near the part, so shall your descendants be. God made the statement, Abraham believed it, he was able to believe and to accept what God had said. He believed it. You know, as as, uh, Jones, Wagner, and Ellen White were preaching the message of righteousness by faith in the years following 1888 and 1888 as well, they often spoke of the power that is available in what Jesus has to say. And uh, one of those expressions that was often referred to, our speaker, I think it was last night, no, the night before, referred to as well, the experience of the centurion and how he uh, his... Um, his uh, child was healed. The, the tremendous power in the message of God is not just the power to heal physically, but it's the power to heal spiritually. I, w- I want to get too far off on that. He also, in the verses we just read, Abraham refused to consider his own weaknesses or use his circumstances as an excuse. Have you ever wanted to use your experience and your weaknesses as an excuse? You know, well, that's just the way I am. Well, you know, my father was like that, and that's the way I am. I got to tell you, I'm get, as I get older, I, got, I see more and more of my father. <laughs> and it's not always the good traits, because my father had good traits and he had bad traits. Any of you have good traits and bad traits? So it's a human condition, right? All right, so I'm not speaking out of turn that my father had both. And so I see some of those things. And, I, and I, you know, you want to blame those weaknesses on, on genetics. Abraham didn't go to genetics. He didn't go to any of his weaknesses. He didn't say, Lord, I, I, you know, this isn't going to work out because I, I just don't see how it can be. I mean, look, I'm 100 years old. This isn't, isn't going to happen. And, you know, Sarah, she... You know, she's way past childbearing age. But he refused to consider his own weaknesses or use his circumstances as an excuse. He believed that whatever God promised, he was fully able to accomplish. Look at verses 22 through 24. And there it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us, that it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Do you see what what Paul is seeking to do? He's going back to that experience of Abraham, a very practical human event and, and challenge that Abraham experienced. But he uses Abraham's experience as a way of saying to us that faith, is a living faith dealing with these kinds of experiences and trust God even though humanity says it doesn't seem to be possible. Paul concludes here by telling his readers that therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was not written for his sake alone, but it was written for us. Hallelujah! That when we're looking at the story and we're looking at what Paul is saying... Paul wants us to know that story is something for us to grasp onto as a way of understanding what faith is. In other words, when we exercise the same quality of faith that Abraham had, we will receive the same righteousness. The righteousness of Christ imputed to our account that Abraham had imputed to his. Abraham was spoken of 
as a righteous man. Look at all the evidences along the way, except for the last test, and you would wonder how he could be counted as righteous. But it is the quality of his faith. In other words, it was the faith that didn't just believe that God existed, but that because of his relationship with Christ, with his connection with Christ, he was fully understanding that God could give life to the dead. He could uh, understand that God, who had spoken something, could be believed. That he could understand that that his weakness was not the problem, it was God's power that was the solution. He could understand that he and believe that whatever God promised, he was able to perform, as verse 21 says. One last thought that we want to have here. From Ellen White, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Righteousness is obedience to the law. The law demands righteousness, and this the sinner owes to the law, but he is incapable of rendering it. All together with us now, right? We can't do it. This is Ellen White, she says. We can't do it. The only way in which he can attain to righteousness is through what? Is through? Is through? Make sure you, you have that. Are we oversimplifying this? I don't think we can. Because the Bible is spending its time. This is what Paul is speaking of in Romans. She goes on, By faith he can bring to God the merits of Christ, and the Lord places the obedience of his Son to the sinner's account. That is good news. We have zero account. It will stay zero. But we come to Christ and we surrender to Him. We confess our sins to Him. And by faith, He says, you've got a 100% in your account. Anything you want, you've got it. Righteousness by faith. All of Christ's righteousness is ours. Does that even make sense? We'll be studying it, Brother Howard reminds me frequently, through eternity. Won't we? I can't comprehend it. You can't comprehend it either. But this is the promise that we have. Continuing on here, Christ's righteousness is accepted in place of man's failure. God receives pardons, justifies the repentant, believing soul, treats him as though he were righteous and loves him as he loves his son. This is how faith is accounted righteousness. Amazing. The gospel is so full. But it's more than this in the sense of understanding how the Christian life develops. What does James have to say about the issue of imputed righteousness? Brother Howard, come and share with us. Pick up on that in a moment. I want to look back at Romans 4. When you look at the story of Abraham, it's interesting, again, that you, you know, initially, Paul's picking this up for righteousness by faith. But when you look at the story of Abraham, it was a promise that he would have lots of descendants. Now, of course, it was more than that, and we could go into that theologically. But the reason I'm saying that is when you look at what Paul is saying back in verse uh, 11, Romans 4.11, it says, And he received the sign of circumcision, the seal of the righteousness by faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. Notice the next part. That he might be what? The father of what? All who believe. And the point is, in, in all of the Paul's is, you know, it's not a direct parable, parallel in every aspect of Abraham's life, but what Paul is trying to do is show us what it means to believe. Abraham is the father of those who believe. What does it mean for me to believe? Now listen, saints, I have, I have saints come to me all the time and say, I don't know, I sometimes I just wonder if I'm going to make it. Abraham, where's our slide? i got to go back. Oops, that's where I want to go. Abraham believed what God said, right? He's going to be a great nation. It says he believed it according to what was spoken there in verse 18. Notice something else. It says, verse 19, he was not weak in faith. Verse number 20, he did not waver. And I used to really take issue with that and, and uh, say, you know, what about lying about his wife being his sister? What about this? What about that? What about Hagar and the whole situation? 
What arrested my attention is a statement Ellen White made clarifying that. And her point was, Abraham never doubted that God would do what he said. He questioned how he was going to do what he said. And there's a big difference. He never questioned that God wasn't going to make a great nation out of him, but how is he going to do it? Oh, maybe he's going to do it this way. Oh, maybe I need to do this thing with Hagar. Oh, maybe, you know, he spoke to my wife and gave her this idea. But he never questioned that God would do it. It's okay for us to question how God's going to make us righteous, but not that he makes us righteous. I may not be able to explain all the math of it, but God said it, he promised it, and Abraham's quality of faith was God can do it, God can do anything, because when God speaks, it becomes a reality. And, 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 and we say things like, but sometimes I don't... What word am I going to say? I don't feel that way. If I felt that way all the time, then it wouldn't be righteousness by faith. It would be righteousness by my feelings. It would be righteousness by my emotions. It would be righteousness by my sight. Why does the Apostle Paul make such a strong distinction? We walk by faith, not by sight. He contrasts the two. This is Paul's whole point when he says Abraham didn't look at his own. He didn't consider his own body. And incidentally, what it says in Scripture is he did not, not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body. In other words, Paul's saying a person who considers his own body, i.e. his own fleshly weaknesses, is weak in faith. But Abraham was not weak in faith. He didn't consider his own body. He didn't say, yeah, but I got all these weaknesses. I got his elder's name. It says all these tendencies, all these traits. Incidentally, all my good traits come from my mom. My mom's here. This week. Right, Mom? All my good traits come from Mom. Dad, on the other hand. I'm being a little facetious. But all the... Abraham didn't, didn't consider those things. God was bigger than his circumstances. The deadness of Sarah's womb? That could have sunk him. He could have said, ah, it's just impossible. Was it impossible? Listen, folks, it was doubly impossible. You have a woman who is sterile after menopause. I, she couldn't have children in her heyday. That's why the Bible says against hope Abraham believed in hope. Because God had said it. And when it came down to it, he believed whatever God promised God could do. Is that the kind of faith you have? Then are you accounted righteous? And this is where you say, well, I don't know. And then you're being weak in faith. Right? Because what the Bible, God tells us right here, again, in verse 23, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for who? For who? For us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus. If we believe the way Abraham believed, we have the righteousness just like Abraham did. Do you believe that God can give life to the dead? Do you believe he can create something from nothing? Do you believe his word? Do you believe he's greater than your weaknesses? He's greater than your circumstances. And that whatever he promises, he can perform. Then are you righteous? <gasps> you can't say different if you believe. That's what God says. By faith in what God... Hey, God's got this. And what's amazing to me is if we come to James, we're going to go to James 2.23 to close. And this passage in James is, is one that uh, in Christian history, had, has has caught a lot of flack. Now it was said at one time that the Apostle Paul, uh, not Apostle Paul, that the uh, reformer Martin Luther thought that the Book of James shouldn't even be canonized because he thought James was too works oriented and he was contradicting the God. Now, I don't know about all the details. I haven't gone into all the details studying that. I know there's some of that, but but this passage in James two, we start in verse twenty one, James two twenty one. I mean, right off the bat, it sounds very contradictory. James 2.21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified how? By what? By, like, didn't he read Romans? <laughs> you know, that's what he was justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? Now, verse 21, Was not Abraham justified by works when? What time period is he applying it to? When he offered Isaac. Now, let's go to the passage we've looked at all morning. When Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Okay, When was that in Abraham's life? 
Was that before Isaac was born or after Isaac was born? That was way before, right? So in other words, Abraham had already been justified by faith by the time we get to James's experience. James is not trying to contradict that Abraham was justified by faith. When he came out and he looked at the stars, and he didn't understand how, but he said, Lord, you said it, and he believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. James is taking us a step further, and we get what he's saying clearly in verse 23. Notice what he says, and this is fascinating to me. Verse 23 says, And the scripture was what? Fulfilled. Which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. What, what James is saying is, when God spoke that to Abraham, it was like a prophecy of righteousness. Like he spoke righteousness to that. Well, wait a minute. Abraham was not righteous, but God spoke it. What is righteousness? Why does God give righteousness anyway? We need it for what? To get to heaven. Why? We don't have any of our own. What does it amount to? Go to Romans 8 with me real quick here. Romans 8. And we're going to see this as we continue through the week as well. But I just want you to get this understanding. Romans 8, verse 3. And I would love to go back. Anytime I do this, I'm going to go back. Let's go back to chapter 7 and start at the beginning. But we don't have time for that. Romans 8, verse 3, it says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through what? The flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now let me just say, what the law couldn't do is make a person righteous. Right? Because of the flesh. Because there's nothing righteous in us. There's no way to produce it. There's no way. If I could keep the law perfectly, in the words of Deuteronomy, then it will be righteousness for us if we can keep all these commandments. But we can't. Okay? But what the law couldn't do, notice, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Notice verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be what? Fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What does that look like? What does that mean, the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in me, fulfilled in you? That means we, what does it mean, the righteousness of the law fulfilled in us? means we keep it perfectly, right? Why am I saying this? Who's going to be in heaven who doesn't keep the law perfectly? What would happen if one person in heaven decided they weren't going to keep the law perfectly? It'd become this, right? Now, I'm not talking about we're going to do this on our own, but the point is the reason God wants us to have righteousness is because righteousness is what fits us to live in heaven with heavenly beings. So, so in essence, what I'm saying is righteousness by faith, makes a person obedient. And when you come to the end of Abraham's life, now you've got to think this through. 75 years of age. I'm not going to ask how old you are, Elvis Naaman. Okay, he's going to tell us anyway. He's 68, and he's about to retire. You know, when you go into retirement, like you, you settle down. No, at the time, and I can't imagine that there wasn't a part of Abraham who wanted to be settled down. But God called him out, right, at 75. Oh, you go through the whole journey of experience. And the, what, what, was, what was he offered? Like, what was the thing that he was going to get for following God? I'm going to make you a great nation, right? And that great nation is going to come through your son, right? And, and which son? Because he had Ishmael, but it wasn't Ishmael. It was Isaac. So by the time he reached the end of his life, every last vestige of God's promise to him was in that one son. And God says, sacrifice him. That's like, give, it's not just like, if you gave up all your money right now, you could still make it. I, there's nothing that I can think of that would, that would, that really communicates what God was asking Abraham to give up. It'd be like, give up eternity. Every hope you have, sacrifice your son. Listen, folks, that is the, is the, is, is the most, the clearest example of obedience. Test of obedience. Like, look, I'm glad to obey some things. There are times I'm a little more resistant to obey, right? And the more it costs me, the harder it is. What James is saying is that when Abraham comes to the point of offering his son, he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works the scripture was fulfilled. What he's saying is, in the offering of his son, we see 
that when God declares a man righteous, it makes that man righteous. It materially changes him so that he becomes a righteous, obedient man by the righteousness of Christ. James just takes us full circle and comes to that conclusion that the righteousness that God declares is fulfilled in the life of the believer by faith. And that's whether you feel it or not. Saints, we should be able to leave this meeting today, leave this campground with the full confidence that we have the righteousness of Christ unless we refuse to believe like Abraham believed. I'm going to finish with this statement. Abraham says, uh, Ellen White says, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. She then elaborates, righteousness is obedience to the law. The law demands righteousness, and this the sinner owes the law, but he is incapable of rendering it. The only way in which he can attain to righteousness is through faith. Isn't that everything we've been studying? <laughs> Cameron DeVazier, I, I work with Pastor Cameron, a lot of you know Pastor Cameron. I do that, you know, sometimes I'll get into these studies, and, 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 I, and I, then I come to some, you know, you, you know when the light bulb comes on, you say, wow, I did, that's an amazing thing. And then you go and you're reading something by Ellen White, and there it is. Written 150 years ago, right? Cameron's like, it's, it, it's kind of like a journey where, you know, where you're climbing up some mountain or something. You're going around the rocks and everything and you're sweating and you're thinking you're not going to make it. You finally get to the top and there's Ellen White sitting on a rock saying, what took you so long? Anyway, Abraham believed God, she says. It was counted well, the scripture says. And then she says, righteousness is obedience to the law. The law demands righteousness and this the sinner owes to the law, but he is incapable of rendering it. The only way in which he can attain to righteousness is through faith. By faith, he can bring to God the merits of Christ. That is the goodness, the righteousness, the doing, the obedience of Christ. And the Lord places the obedience of His Son to the sinner's account. <laughs> Hallelujah! Christ's righteousness is accepted in the place of man's failure. And God receives, pardons, justifies the repenting, believing soul, treats him as though he were righteous, and loves him as he loves his Son. This is how faith is accounted righteousness. But while God can be just and yet justify the sinner through the merits of Christ, no man can cover his soul with the garments of Christ's righteousness while practicing known sins or neglecting known duties. God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. Now, do you think God's being nitpicky? You know why that is? And we'll look at the statement. We had it the other day, and we'll look at it again tomorrow. But Ellen White said, we receive righteousness by receiving Him. Too many people make the mistake of, of, of separating the righteousness of Christ from the person of Christ. We receive the righteousness of Christ by receiving Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And in that, I receive the righteousness... So if I don't make an entire surrender, what, is Christ going to come and dwell in your heart along with your sin? It's not going to do it. It's one or the other. So she's not, God's not trying to be nitpicky, but we've got to be willing to either have Christ dwell in us or no. God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. And in order for man to retain justification, there must be continual obedience through active living faith. That's simply saying, i got to keep saying yes to Jesus. This isn't saying, we're going to elaborate it this week, this doesn't mean you're not going to stumble, and then you're kicked out, like a pastor friend of mine used to say, God doesn't kick you out of the shower because you dropped the soap. Okay? But, so I don't want to get the wrong idea, but at the same time, let me finish the statement, there must be continual obedience through active living faith that works by love and purifies the soul. James writes of Abraham and says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works, when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar. In order for man to be justified by faith, faith, faith must reach a point where it will control the affections and impulses of the heart. That's not your work, that's God's work. God is the one who develops the faith. But we, and, and you see that in the history and the lifetime of Abraham. And it came to that point. Faith must reach a point where it will control the affections and impulses of the heart and and it is by obedience that faith itself is made perfect. We have to keep saying yes to the Lord, and the Lord will do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Amen? Amen. As I said, if you have that faith of Abraham, 
you can right now say, I have the righteousness of Christ. That's what Scripture tells us. That righteousness of Christ, the perfect obedience of God's Son, is imputed to us, and God sees in us the purity, the righteousness, the obedience of His own Son. Amen? Isn't that great news? The great news of the Gospel, the righteousness of God revealed to us from faith to faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the testimony of your word. And Lord, you are speaking through clay. These, these, these concepts are so wonderful, so beautiful. And I feel very limited in trying to communicate them. But I know and I trust, Lord, not by feeling, but by faith, that the spirit of truth is present to speak to our hearts and our minds to help us to lay hold of this precious truth, this precious message of the righteousness of Christ, imputed to the sinner's account by faith. Father, we thank you so much for your blessings to us and your mercy to us, all undeserved, your amazing grace. I pray for your continued blessing throughout this camp meeting day. I pray that each one here, as they go to different seminars, as they interact and fellowship with brothers and sisters, Lord, that we would all grow closer and closer to Jesus and long more and more for Him to come. We ask and pray these things in His name and for His sake. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.